This is a Diet of Brussels. This month we're in a slightly strange position in that it feels very familiar and yet I think we are seeing some developments that matter in the progress of the UK-EU relationship. The thing that's quite familiar is this talk that we've been having for several months now uh, about a possible deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, almost immediately followed up whenever there's some good news by uh, some uh, rebuttals from officials on one side or the other, or as we have most recently, both sides. The thing that is striking, I think, in all of this is not so much the shape of the deal, because I think that that's not particularly remarkable, uh, but more the fact that such things even exist as part of the discourse. Now, just to to be clear about what we're talking about here, we have uh, reports repeatedly uh, since the end of 2022 that UK and EU officials have been able to find some uh, agreements and make some progress on finding common ground between their positions. The EU saying uh, perhaps we might give some way about the way that the uh, Court of Justice uh, is involved in uh, arbitrating disputes over EU law. Uh, the UK committing to uh, fulfilling the, the text of the protocol um, uh, and trying to ease the sharing of information. And we saw that already with the, the final much delayed inauguration of the uh, data sharing system uh, a couple of months ago. And in so doing, both sides would seek very much to try and minimise the number of controls and checks uh, between uh, Northern Ireland and uh, the EU, but also try to limit the need for checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Now that makes sense. Uh, if you like. It uh, appears to retain the protocol architecture, which has always been a, a strong uh, uh, request and requirement on the EU side. It works pretty progressively to uh, addressing UK concerns uh, about border controls, but also about the position of the court. And you can kind of see how that might work. You know, it feels very much like the, I don't know, the student simulation version of this negotiation. The problem is, is that the politics still don't work and they haven't worked. Um, as much as the end of Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister opened up the possibility to... British administration starting to think about how it might actually uh, have uh, something other than just a, a knee-jerk rejection of anything to do with the EU or anything European. Uh, we saw that with Liz Truss, briefly, uh, and we've seen it certainly continue with Rishi Sunak. It doesn't change the position of number 10 and the Prime Minister relative to their party. And importantly, uh, Whereas Liz Truss had, I think, a strong profile and reputation as an ardent Brexiter, 
not necessarily warranted, but she certainly had that reputation, could carry uh, the EIG uh, and uh, significant parts of her party with her in this kind of muscular engagement rather than just uh, ignoring the issue. Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to have that same kind of profile, doesn't have that same kind of capital to draw on. And this matters because without that, as with so much of Sunak's premiership uh, in these first hundred days, as we are this week, uh, at the beginning of February, uh, he's unable and indeed unwilling to engage in pushing back against the demands of different factions of his party. And it's clear that even though the ERG is not the force that it once was, it lacks the discipline, the coherence, the uh, clarity of purpose that it had during the hot phase of Article 50 back in 2017, 2018, 2019, it still has enough clout to make its voice heard. Moreover, away from Westminster, it's clear that none of this really solves the problem of Northern Ireland itself. The other issues that it faces, notably around the uh, non-formation of the Northern Ireland executive. We're in this uh, limbo of the Northern Ireland Secretary saying that there needs to be new uh, elections, but nobody really wants it, including him, uh, and it won't solve anything. So he's not going to call it just yet, but he will if people force him to, even though it won't solve anything. Now, the DUP have been very clear and they've wheeled out their seven tests uh, that they first formulated back in uh, 2021 as the benchmark for whether they would then uh, re-engage with the executive uh, and its formation, which is requires their participation under the terms of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Now that set of seven tests is something that we've covered in previous episodes, but essentially the thing that we should take from that is that those seven tests are incompatible with even a, a modified form of the protocol. If we take them in a literal sense, you can't actually maintain the protocol framework and uh, expect that the tests are met and then the DUP would be willing to return to uh, power sharing. Now, uh, that's not really a surprise, and, and I think it's clear also that the DUP designed those tests uh, precisely to be unmeetable uh, in the current climate. Uh, I think you know we have to, to recognise that this is not uh, solely a, a protocol issue that is keeping them out of power. It's also uh, an unhappiness that they would not be the largest party in the Assembly following Sinn Féin's success in the last elections. But this is by the by. You could imagine that uh, if the U EU and the UK were able to present a united front, uh, around management of the protocol that perhaps um, with uh, a concerted effort, including from Dublin, that you might be able to move the parties in the right direction towards uh, a return to uh, Stormont uh, sitting and the executive being in operation. But we don't have that coordination. We don't have that uh, determination. Uh, we have a lot of people uh, basically everyone, saying that the 
Belfast Good Friday arrangement is uh, the only game in town, that it is the system that should be pursued. It is the only mutually agreed framework that exists for everyone. Uh, even if they do know that there are going to be some uh, issues, you know, there are some questions about how uh, enduringly fit for purpose it is as it reaches its 25th anniversary, notably with the increasing number of uh, non-unionist, non-Republican uh, 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 members of the Assembly uh, and people in the population, um, power sharing becomes... Uh, more problematic. Um, so there's a lot going on here and the protocol is only part of the picture. But without power sharing coming back into effect, it's hard to see how you then can make the agreement stick on the protocol. It calls into question about how much the protocol is actually uh, worth fixing if uh, you can't uh, have power sharing in place. And so we're kind of locked into this doom loop of uh, we can't fix one thing because of the other and we can't fix the other thing because of the one thing. All of which is to say that we have a degree of uh, Groundhog Day uh, around this. That each time there's been a report, it's uh, it's been tempting to think that perhaps... Uh, the top secret diplomacy and negotiations that have been going on have somehow cracked and squared the uh, circle that was there. However, I think we have to remain lastingly cautious about the chances of that happening. The structural situation has not shifted uh, and is unlikely to shift, uh, certainly whilst we retain the constellation of uh, forces uh, that we uh, currently have. Most obviously with a Conservative government in uh, Westminster with uh, the relative balance of Sinn Féin and the DUP in uh, Northern Ireland and uh, to a lesser extent the complexion of the government in uh, the Republic. Um, you know, as far as the DUP is concerned, there's no government that's likely ever to come to power in uh, Dublin that is going to be satisfactory or uh, ameliorating their concerns. Uh, and particularly at a time when Sinn Féin look as though they're going to do very well uh, in Irish elections, uh, that looks even less uh, likely as a scenario. So I think we have to, to keep all of this in mind as... We look ahead to the next year, year and a half, until we get to, let's say, a British general election. It's conceivable that if Chris Heaton-Harris does move to having Northern Irish elections, and if the DUP is able to uh, return to being the largest party, that then maybe you'd have a bit more flexibility. But then I think you'd have the challenge that the DUP would feel that they are returning uh, to being the, the the lead political force in uh, Northern Ireland and that that might make them uh, less transigent uh, than uh, they currently are, which is uh, completely uh, intransigent. If we can't solve these problems, I think one of the things that's been useful and one of the things that I've been working on recently is thinking about 
what we're talking about when we're talking about Brexit and the, the EU-UK relationship. And those of you who've been following uh, my blog, uh, which you can find uh, in various places, but if you search for Simon Usherwood blog, uh, you will find me on the Open University website. Uh, you will find me on Ideas for Europe. Uh, uh, .eu, and indeed you can find me on Substack where you can subscribe and then you don't have to look for anything because it will come to you in a nice little email uh, every week. In all of those places, which is always the same thing, uh, so no one's missing out, but uh, do feel free to visit all of them just to, to compare my formatting, is this idea that actually what we're talking about very often is the content of what a relationship should look like you know should we be in the single market should we have a uh, phytosanitary agreement should we do cooperation on security should we do this should we do that should we you know arise in europe you name it you know that's the kind of conversation that we typically have now clearly content matters but one of the things that's quite striking for me is that we very rarely talk about the purpose of the relationship what is the objective that we should have when we're thinking about you know, what we might do together or not do together? So what, for example, is the logic of Brexit? Now, this is a question that I've long kind of drawn out, you know, when we've thought about the referendum, that we had a, a decision to leave, but what we didn't have was an agreement about why we're leaving. What's the point of the exercise? Now, when you phrase it like that, it does sound a bit like a kind of a Ramona kind of argument if you know you don't know what you're trying to do. But actually, I think what we're saying here is, is that we had lots of different arguments. And you know, part of the thing that happened in the referendum was people latched onto arguments that they liked and they went with, well, in order to follow that logic, I should vote this way or that. So it's as true for those who wanted to stay in the EU as those who wanted to leave. That why we should do that was rarely there. You know, there's kind of uh, somewhat misty and muddly ideas that are behind that. But we never kind of reached a consensus. And, you know, as much as people tried, and, you know, I think the person who got closest, ironically, was Theresa May, who started to try and think about, you know, how this fitted into a, a broader picture of what the UK should be like as a society, what kind of relationship it should have with the world. She really lost any traction uh, for making that happen once she had... Uh, failed to convincingly win the 2017 general election. Instead, what we have is a cacophony of voices, people with different ideas, this kind of place, this kind of society, this kind of uh, mission uh, behind it. But I think we've passed the point where enough people are bothered and concerned enough about this issue to sit down and to be able to sit down, in fact, in a way that doesn't uh, descend into bitter and acrimonious dispute, to try and find a, a way that we can frame the 
purpose of the exercise such that most people could feel that that was acceptable. You know, beyond banalities about making Britain a better place, you know, what does that mean? You know, what constitutes being a better place? You know, is it about our economics? Is it about our inequalities, about our societies, about our politics? I don't know what. You know, there are lots of different arguments here, and it's not for me to say what the right thing is. But we have to be clear that there's a difference between arguments about being in or out of a particular part of cooperation with the EU, you know, kind of the substantive side, and this more kind of philosophical uh, set of ideas that circulate around the, the objectives. So as long as we don't have consensus around the, the purpose, it's really hard to know quite what makes most sense in terms of substantive content. And linked to that, we also then can only then really start to think, well, what's the what's the method by which we do that? You know, is that about a treaty uh, with the EU? Is it about some kind of other mechanism? Do we not need any kind of you know hard law behind it? Could we do it through agreements or just practice? You know, it's just about, you know, acting in this kind of way. Again, those things matter because the instruments that we use you know, the, the processes, uh, quite aside from the uh, substance, speaks to the level of our commitment, the degree of our intent. Clearly, you know, if we think about the difference between having something that's treaty-based and not treaty-based, you ha have a, a difference in terms of legal obligation in international law in terms of dispute settlement mechanisms you know how much can you be held to your word indeed how much can your successors be held to your word which was always a, a key part of the integration process that is it's partly tying your hands but it's also about tying the hands of those who follow you and behind all of this i think there's a a third element indeed a fourth element that we should be considering and we do consider which if you like the, the kind of the the practice you know how do we go about doing any of this kind of thing and here we kind of think about things like trust and good faith you know we've talked a lot about how trust is uh, in a very bad condition between the UK and the EU as a result of the article 50 process and uh, the UK's perceived backsliding, the substantive backsliding uh, when it comes to the Internal Market Bill, the Retained EU Law Bill, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, all of these things, you know, which are kind of overt uh, stepping away uh, from uh, the obligations under treaties. So trust matters. But trust is not an objective in itself. You know, it's it's not enough, uh, or indeed, sent, you know, doesn't really have any sense to say. You know, our objective is to be trusted in our relationship with the EU. Because again, it just asks the question: Well, why? Hopefully, something uh, like trust and good faith is something that is uh, of intrinsic value, as is the notion of being a reliable partner. So you know making decisions that are durable, that are not simply for this particular government, but for generation, maybe generations uh, to come. If we pull that together, we can see here that there is a number of different 
things that we have to consider when we're talking about the relationship. So when we hear discussions about this kind of content, that kind of content, we have to remember that that's not the whole thing. One of the things that's striking again here when we think about the uh, opening discussion we've just had about this kind of, you know, technical agreements, political agreements, is that they're not really couched in those terms of the purpose. They're not really couched in terms of this kind of, you know, principles of uh, behavior. Um, and not so much in the mechanisms, you know, they kind of work around the mechanisms, but you know, more just because those are the mechanisms that are there rather than because they're necessarily the right mechanisms. So in the longer run, I think if we want to get to a point where we have something that looks like a more stable relationship between the UK and the EU, then both sides really need to take full account of all of these four elements of the principles, of the substance, of the processes and of the principles. And that both sides thing, I think, is the last point for today's uh, episode. International relations is not a pick and mix. It's not that you just say, oh, I like this and I like that and I'll have a bit of that, and a bit of that, and then I'll pay my money and then I'll take it and I'll consume it. It's a dialogue between you and your counterparts that you have to acknowledge and recognize that what you want is not completely within your control to have, that it requires the complicity, the agreement of others in order to produce the outcome that you desire. And if we don't have that, then I think we risk falling into the kind of solipsistic uh, uh, debate that we often have in the UK, which is the public want this, or the public wants that, or this party wants this, or that party wants that, without really considering, well, you can want all the things you want, but doesn't mean you're going to get them. So if we think about the recent debate, for example, around uh, rejoining or, you know, lots of regrets in uh, pretty much every part of the UK about the decision to leave in 2016, even if everyone in the UK, without exception, said we want to rejoin the EU, it's not for the UK to have that power. It's for the EU to say we will accept you to become a member again of the EU. Now, that might seem like a technicality, and surely if everyone in the UK, without exception, didn't have a problem, there wouldn't be a problem on the EU side. But, you know, I think you have to accept that, you know, just as uh, uh, we've seen a shift of public opinion towards being more supportive of the EU in the last six years, we shouldn't remember that we had the reverse thing happening in the decade or so before the referendum. So public opinion by itself is not a reliable bedrock on which to build relations. And indeed, it's not even a sufficient bedrock. It's part of the process of political decision making and the dialogue and the negotiation that happens between the different parties. So if we want to understand where the UK might end up, we also need to understand where the EU might end up and what it wants and what it is willing to consider and accept. And that's 
something that we'll be exploring in coming months uh, as we go further. But until then, uh, I think we will see more of the briefings about things happening and then the counter briefings saying they're not going to happen. On that cheery note, I shall leave you and talk to you again soon.